Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Going to teach this passage, but after doing chapter 19, reading chapter 20 again, and praying about it, I just felt compelled to do so. Because I believe it's important to go through these verses as it really completes our look at Paul's ministry in Ephesus and to the people there. It is a very rich, instructive, and deeply touching passage from which we'll be able to glean some great practical lessons for ourselves today. So if you'll please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. This morning we'll be looking at verses 17 through 38. We'll begin looking at verses 17 through 38. When we went through the book of Acts 14 years ago, we actually took this section and did it in four messages, but uh, we're not going to do that this time. We're going to get through it in a couple of messages, so that means we're not going to be going as in-depth and just hitting uh, the high points, but it will be instructive and encouraging and, and meaningful nonetheless. Well, to kind of set the context and get us up and running, you'll remember from last week, great things were being accomplished in Ephesus through Paul's preaching and teaching of God's Word, but all of this was not without opposition. Because when a society is greatly impacted because of Jesus Christ, you can count on it, there's going to be satanic opposition. Because Satan wants to keep his hold on the lives of men and women and the society in which they live. And in the last half of chapter 19, which we looked at last week, we saw the opposition that arose in Ephesus because the gospel was having an impact on that pagan society. So much so that it even had a great impact upon the local economy. And this caused an uproar which resulted in a riot. But God in his providence overruled the mob. The Lord used the pagan city clerk to calm the crowd and end the riot and the immediate threat to Paul and other, the other Christians. And so the riot was over. Those in charge said the Christians had done nothing wrong. The Christians were vindicated. Paul's friends were released. Paul was not attacked and eventually able to leave Ephesus without any trouble. And so Paul left Ephesus for Jerusalem via Macedonia. If you look at chapter 20, verse 1, we're just going to breeze through these first 16 verses quickly just to set the context. And so we read in chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent to the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia, most likely Philippi. And so from there from Macedonia, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, which he sent ahead of his own visit to the church in Corinth. We read in verse 2, when he had gone through those regions, speaking of Macedonia and Achaia, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, that is, he came to the city of Corinth. And this would be Paul's final visit to Corinth, and while Paul was there, he wrote his majestic letter to the Romans. And now in verses 3 through 6, we read in chapter 20, there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and Secundus, and 
Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And Luke only records one incident during the week that Paul was in Troas. And you know the story. Paul was, was preaching, and it, he went long, as preachers have a tendency to do. He went late into the evening. And a young man by the name of Eutychus was sitting in the window, and as Paul went on, this young man, sunk into a deep sleep, actually fell out of the window and was killed. So the moral of that story is don't fall asleep in church, right? <laughs> but God, through the Apostle Paul, raised him from the dead. And Paul then left, going overland, while his companions set sail, and they met up in, in Asos. And there Paul boarded the ship, and they sailed to Mytilene, and then after making a couple of stops along the way, they arrived in Miletus. And we read in verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hasting to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, because he wanted to reach Miletus, because he wanted to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. But we read in verse 17, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. While he was in Miletus, despite his hurry to get to Jerusalem, Paul, whose concern was always for the church, used this opportunity to send for the Ephesian elders. His love and concern for the church and these men compelled him to see them one last time. He wanted to share his heart with them. There were important issues he needed to speak to them about. And so he sent word for them to come to him in Miletus. And as the crow flies, Ephesus was only 30 miles north of Miletus. But it was much longer over the winding road. And it must have taken about three days for a messenger to travel to Ephesus and bring the elders back to Miletus. But in due time, the elders arrived. And these elders were probably the pastors of the numerous house churches that met all over Ephesus. And probably most, if not all of them, were among the disciples that Paul met with and taught in the school of Tyrannus. And you'll notice, first of all, that Paul refers to the leaders of the church as elders. The word elders is the Greek word from which we get presbyter, from which you get Presbyterian. And it simply refers to a mature man. And so these were men who were Mature, But keep in mind, this is not referring to physical maturity, but rather one who is spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't just come with age. Sometimes there are younger men who have a depth of spiritual maturity many older men will never have. And so this is not the idea that these were necessarily older men, but they are spiritually mature men. Paul also referred to these same men in verse 28 as overseers. It's the word episkopos, from which we get the word episcopal. It means one who oversees or rules. Also in verse 28, they are told to care for. And those two words come from one Greek word, which means poimino, or which is poimino, which means to feed, pasture, tend the flock, to direct. And it can be translated shepherd or pastor, which it's translated shepherd in the New American Standard. And this emphasizes the task of feeding or teaching. So this term elder describes the man. He's, he's one who is spiritually mature. Overseer describes his function. He is one who helps oversee the church. The term shepherd emphasizes the task of feeding or teaching of the flock. And all three are used 
No matter what your uh, ecclesiology is, all three are used to refer to those in the highest places of spiritual leadership within the church. And so Paul called the elders, the pastors of the churches in Ephesus, to come to Miletus to meet him. And what we have now in verses 18 to 38 is Paul's farewell to these Ephesian elders, which we have in summary form. And it's a very moving passage of Scripture. I mean, there, there is a depth of emotion here. This farewell message is unique in that it it is Paul's only recorded message in Acts which was given to a Christian audience, more specifically to church leaders. And it reveals Paul the pastor rather than Paul the evangelist or Paul the defender of the faith. Here we get a unique picture of Paul the pastor and what was important to him as a leader and shepherd of God's people. Here is Paul the older, battle-scarred pastor defending himself. So Paul's critics have been at work in Ephesus trying to undermine him as a man of God and leader. And and this comes through in his repeatedly saying, you yourselves know. And then his reminding the Ephesian elders of his character and the way of life when he had been with them. He's clearly defending himself while at the same time he is pouring out his heart to the younger pastors who were going to carry on the work. So here are Paul's last words of instruction to the Ephesian elders. And his message divides into four parts. First, in verses 17 to 21, Paul reviewed the past. He speaks about his three-year ministry in Ephesus. Secondly, in verses 22 to 27, he discussed the present, his trip to Jerusalem and what awaited him there. Thirdly, in verses 28 to 35, he speaks about the future. He warned the elders of the dangers the churches would face. And then fourthly, in verses 36 to 38, we have his actual farewell. Well, let's look now at verses 18 to 21 as Paul begins with his own ministry in Ephesus. Notice verse 18. It says, And when they came to him, he called for the elders, and now we read, And when they came to him. Now, there's no doubt these elders had jobs, family obligations, and other responsibilities, but when Paul called, they came. And by making the trip from Ephesus to Miletus, these elders demonstrated that the Lord and the care of his church had priority in their lives. And here we see a necessary element of leadership. If you're going to be used by God in ministry and in leadership, you must make yourself available. I mean, the elders came. And don't think for a moment that it was easy. Uh, It wasn't easy. They didn't have paid vacations or sick leave that they could use in those days. They were not working. They were not getting paid. To come when Paul called them was not a matter of convenience. They couldn't hop in a car and drive the 40, 50 miles or so, whatever it was. This was an arduous journey. It required sacrifice. It was very hard. But when Paul said, men, we need to get together to be instructed, exhorted, encouraged, and pray, they showed up. They made it a priority in their lives. They made themselves available, and they came. So we can make a point of application here, can't we? You know, what about you? You may not be in a position of leadership, but are you available to be used by God? You know, when the church gathers, are you there? Do you set aside your schedule and make yourself available to use the gifts, talents, abilities, and skills that God has given you for his sake and his glory? And make no mistake about it. God gives us gifts not for our own sake and use, but for the benefit of the body of Christ. 
And so again, do you make yourself available? Do you make it a priority to come and use the gifts, talents, abilities, and skills that God has given you for the sake of the church and the other members of the body of Christ? Do you make yourself available to come and pray? Do you make yourself available to serve on Sunday wherever there is a need? Do you make yourself available to get involved with other believers in a home fellowship? I'm not saying do you make yourself available when it's convenient. I'm just simply asking do you make yourself available? Do you make yourself available to be used by God to serve Him by serving others? You know, does that have a priority in your schedule? Or are you unavailable most of the time giving priority to other things? It's sure is something we should all give some serious thought to. The elders made themselves available. They put their personal lives on hold and they came. And we read now in verse 18, he said to them. And so Paul begins to review the past, speaking about how he ministered in Ephesus for three years. And keep in mind, he had to be very honest. Because he spent a lot of time with these men. They had watched him for three years. So he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia or in Ephesus. You yourselves know how I lived among you. I mean, they had observed Paul's life and ministry for three years. They they knew how he lived during the entire time he was with them from beginning to end. I mean, he lived openly among them. He wasn't a celebrity, you know, recluse. No, he lived openly among them. And he didn't put on a front when he was with them and and then live differently when he was away from them. No, he had nothing to hide. Paul was a man of integrity. And integrity, of course, means that what you are in private or at home is the same as what you are in public or at work. Your life is a single fabric. It's not a lie. You don't live a double life. And by reminding the Ephesian elders of their first-hand knowledge of his ministry, Paul was, in fact, setting forth his own ministry as an example for them to follow. So Paul said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. That was Paul's motive for ministry. Serving the Lord. That was his life. That was his everything. Serving the Lord. And this word serving is a very strong term which most all of our English translations downplay. The significance of this strong term is that it doesn't simply mean serve, but rather it literally means to be a slave. It means to be a slave, to be owned by another and to act accordingly, conducting oneself in total service to another in performing the duties of a slave. And most of the time in in our English translations, when we see the word serve, serving, servant, bondservant, it should be translated slave. It used to be that way in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, but they revised that. They call it now the Christian Standard Bible, and they've changed that. They changed it back to servant. But the new legacy uh, standard version, 
has it back in there. Where it's, where it's supposed to be slave, it says slave. And that's what this word literally means, slave. Paul literally calls himself a slave. And this word is in the present tense. So Paul is saying this was his lifestyle. This was his habitual practice. He served the Lord as a slave. He consented and he consented to and carried out the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul repeatedly and, and prominently describes himself as a slave of Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Romans 1.1, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Titus 1.1, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. This is the way Paul viewed himself. And this is the way that every Christian should view him or herself. Why? Because that's exactly what we are. Because we don't belong to ourselves any longer. The Bible tells us we've been bought for a price. We were purchased out of the slave market of sin so that we are now slaves of Jesus Christ. I mean, we were beggars in need of salvation when the Savior brought us into the kingdom. We belonged to him, lock, stock, and barrel. And therefore, as the scripture says, we are no longer to live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. This means that our primary commitment in life and in all that we do is to be a faithful slave of Jesus Christ. I mean, the thing that we're to be most concerned about is being a faithful slave of Jesus Christ, carrying out the will of our Lord and Master in order to bring glory and honor to Him. I mean, whatever we do should be done to please Him. And so Paul saw his ministry first and foremost as a slave of Christ. And he considered it a great honor and privilege to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords in this way. And so should we. Our whole life should be about being a faithful slave of Christ. So Paul's motive for ministry was serving the Lord. Secondly, we see the manner of Paul's ministry. Paul's service was characterized by three things. First of all, humility. Look at verse 19. Paul was serving the Lord with all humility. And so Paul reminds the elders that while he was with them, he served the Lord with all humility. Now keep in mind, Paul was an incredibly gifted man. Incredibly gifted. Probably had multiple PhDs. I mean, no kidding. The guy was a scholar. He was very capable, very astute and knowledgeable. But as knowledgeable and astute as Paul was, he was humble. And in a nutshell, biblical humility is a conscious awareness of our utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a truly humble person is, is continually aware that all he has, all that he is, all that, all that he will ever be stems from God's grace and not from any merit of our own. And so his confidence is not in himself but in the Lord so that he's quick to give the glory to God in every situation. And we see this in Paul when he explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and 10 for I am the least of the apostles, 
who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I mean, Paul knew that he was no different from anyone else. He was a sinner saved by grace. He realized that every ability and gift he possessed were gifts of God's grace and not due to any merit of his own, and they were to be used for him and his glory, and he was to be served with all of his might. I mean, he understood it was all, all because of the goodness and the grace of God. Paul knew he had absolutely nothing to be proud of. I mean, he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. I mean, Paul knew he had no right to think anything of as coming from himself because our sufficiency is from God. It was God. It wasn't Paul on his own. It was God who made Paul competent to be a minister. I mean, the only reason Paul or any other Christian, for that matter, has the capacity to do anything for Christ is because of Christ. Because of his divine enabling and empowering his gifting. You know, Paul applied to himself what he had said earlier to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 4-7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It would make a big difference in the lives of many who are in positions of leadership if they would think of their gifts and abilities like that. In our service to Jesus, there needs to be a constant sense of our own inadequacy. You know, that we are inadequate in ourselves and we must totally rest and depend upon the power of Christ, the power of his Spirit. Paul didn't see himself as a religious celebrity demanding that others serve him. No, he served as a slave of Jesus Christ and he served in humility. And humility is so important because the opposite of humility is pride. And pride is a great danger for any Christian, and especially those in positions of leadership. Because if people in leadership don't guard their hearts, they may forget that any success, any blessing that comes their way is from the Lord, and they may begin to think that they did it on their own. And we know what what, will happen then. Pride comes before what? A fall. Like Paul, we we should serve the Lord as a faithful slave and do so in all humility. Secondly, Paul served the Lord with tears. Look at verse 19 again. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Now when it says that Paul served with tears, it doesn't mean that he was this weepy person, someone who just had frequent outbursts of emotion and was just crying all the time to be crying. It's not what it means. It means he was a man of great empathy. He was a man who had a tender and compassionate heart who could identify with the people he ministered to. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul said, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And three things in particular moved Paul to tears. First, he was grieved over the state of the lost. In Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Paul said, For I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, Paul shed many tears over the lost. 
Paul was also moved to tears over weak, struggling, sinning Christians. When he wrote his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul described his his feelings when he wrote uh, the first letter. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he says, I wrote the first letter crying through, through the whole thing because of your carnality and your inconsistencies. And Paul cared. Paul also wept over the great threat false teachers were to the church because they undermined the gospel and God's work. And he'll say to the Ephesian elders a little later on in the chapter in verse 31, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. And he warned them about false teachers through tears. I mean, that grieved him. And to the Philippian church, Paul wrote, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And again, he's speaking, of course, of false teachers. Paul wept over the lost. He wept over carnal or sinning Christians. And he wept for God's glory, or because God's glory was being undermined by false teaching. Many tears. And Paul wept a lot. Like Jesus, he was a man of sorrow, very much acquainted with grief. And the fact of the matter is, uh, anyone in leadership, if you serve the Lord long enough, you'll find yourself shedding some tears. And like Paul, you'll find yourself crying tears of compassion and concern. You'll find yourself crying with people and and for them, crying over the lost, the sinning brother or sister, the false teachers that are just tearing up the churches. And sadly, those in leadership, if you've been in leadership very long at all, you'll also find yourself crying tears when you're deeply hurt because you've been maligned and slandered and ridiculed and maliciously criticized and lied about by people you have loved and cared for and ministered to sometimes for many years. The fact is, anyone who desires to serve the Lord Jesus is going to find themselves at times crying many tears. But the good news in all of that is that the tears of the servant of God are not in vain. For the psalmist wrote in Psalm 126, verse 6, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so to those with caring, compassionate hearts who faithfully spread the seed of the word, God promises rejoicing and, and a spiritual harvest. Paul served with tears, thirdly, Paul served with trials. Look again at verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, it happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul served with trials. And you know that if you've read the New Testament at all. And here he specifically mentions that many of those trials were at the hands of the Jews. I mean, it was always the Jews, seemingly, that that hassled him and plotted against him. And they gave him a hard time in Ephesus, speaking evil of the way publicly. That's why he moved from the synagogue to the hall of Tyrannus. And then in chapter 3, or chapter 20, verse 3, they they plotted to kill him at sea. So that's why he changed his plans and traveled overland instead. I mean, throughout his ministry, Paul faced continual hostility and persecution from the Jews. But not only the Jews, also from the Gentiles. The Ephesian elders had seen Paul's behavior when the Gentiles rioted against him. And in all of those situations, they saw Paul, even though he despaired of life itself, trust 
uh, all the more in God? And you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul lists some of what he suffered, and he was referring there to certain Jewish leaders in the church who were boasting of all their suffering for Christ. And so he writes of his own suffering. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In Acts chapter 8, the Lord was speaking to Ananias about Paul. And he said to Ananias of Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And those words certainly came true, didn't they? And speaking of the trials that abound in the ministry, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the, in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So in spite of the many, many trials and suffering that Paul experienced, he always maintained the proper eternal perspective. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18, So we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I mean, Paul knew that the trials and suffering of this life were only temporary and, and were nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Well, Paul understood in a way that, that most don't that the ministry means a life of trials and suffering. One commentator wrote, Some judge the success of a servant of God by how large or widespread his ministry is, by how many degrees he has, or by how much publicity he receives. But the true measure of a servant of God is whether he focuses solely on pleasing God, which gives him the willingness to serve with humility and suffer opposition from those hostile to the truth. So Paul reminds the Ephesian elders of how he ministered among them. His life was one of continual service to Christ as a faithful slave with selfless devotion to the Lord and an attitude fitting of a slave. And he did so with all humility, with tears and trials. And through it all, Paul had an unshakable commitment to God and his people. And of course, commitment means different things to different people. For example, you know, the young guy who was crafting what he thought was just this eloquent love letter in an email to his girlfriend, you know, the, the woman of his dreams, 
And so in this email, he's pouring out his heart. He's assuring her of, of his undying devotion, saying, Hey, babe, I, I would climb the highest mountain. I would swim the widest stream. I would cross the burning desert. I would die at the stake for you. P.S. I'll see you on Saturday if it doesn't rain. <laughs> Paul wasn't like that. Paul was totally committed to God and his people. And he was determined by the grace and strength that God supplies to seek God's honor and glory and the best of the people the whole time. Paul was also committed to boldly proclaiming God's word. In verses 20 to 21, Paul recounts his message. He continues to remind the Ephesian elders of his ministry, now focusing on the message he preached. He says in verse 20, if you'll notice, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And Paul understood that the primary task, his primary task as an apostle and as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was to declare the word of God, teaching the scriptures so that believers might be equipped to do the work of ministry. And Paul would write to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 15, and he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Paul taught the scriptures because the purpose of the church when it gathers is to teach the scriptures so that believers might be equipped to do the work of ministry and come to a mature faith. And when Paul taught the word of God, he did so plainly and simply. He, he held nothing back. And the expression did not shrink, which also appears in verse 27, is a Greek medical term which was used to describe the withholding of food from patients. It means to draw back or to withhold. And Paul says, I never did that. Paul says, I never held back any spiritual food from you. I never shrank back from declaring to you anything that was profitable, which means to confer a benefit, to be advantageous or useful. And the idea is to bring together for the benefit, the profit, or the advantage of another. So Paul says, I didn't hold back anything that was profitable. But the question is, what was profitable for them? What was profitable? In other words, maybe it's more profitable if we don't talk about certain things, lest we offend certain people in the church and so on. You know, maybe such and such a doctrine isn't profitable. I mean, who's to say what's profitable and, and what is not profitable for a certain congregation? How do you really know what's profitable? Well, we don't have to be in the dark about that. That's very easy. Because God answered that question for us. God answered that question once and for all when he said through Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Teaching involves communicating the principles of God's word. Reproof refers to applying scripture to produce conviction of sin. 
Correction gives repentant sinners the biblical direction to turn from sin and follow Christ. And training in righteousness moves believers along the path toward Christ's likeness. So that the believer who is well versed in and armed with the scriptures will be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul said, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, it implies, of course, that some things that are profitable are hard. They're difficult to hear. They're difficult to receive and and therefore difficult to teach. This also suggests to us that some of the elders, the Ephesian elders, may have faced the temptation to water down the message, to, to tone it down a little bit. But if Paul had been seeking to please men, which he wasn't, but if Paul had been seeking to please men, he would have dodged the hard truth. If he had wanted to win the favor of the crowd, he would have chosen other subjects. There are plenty of pleasant things to teach. But because he sought to please God first and foremost, because he was a faithful slave and minister of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul absolutely refused to dilute the truth in any way, shape, or form, because he knew that all the truths of God's word are profitable for spiritual health and growth. I mean, what were some of these truths? Well, we can surmise a few of them by simply reading the book of Ephesians, which he later wrote to this church. And there in Ephesians, he begins by talking about the doctrines of God's sovereign election and predestination. He goes on to talk about human depravity, that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of this, salvation is totally from God's grace and not from our own merit or works. He shows how the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles is broken down in Christ. And all of these doctrines that that, that I've just mentioned, they level human pride and exalt the cross of Jesus Christ because they rob man of any basis for pride. And people don't like these truths. And people stumble over these truths. But like health food, they're profitable for spiritual health. And so Paul taught them. He held nothing back, and we should should do the same. Paul declared to them the whole counsel of God. His message included the doctrines and duties as well as the privileges and responsibilities that belong to the Christian life. He didn't avoid proclaiming to them truths from God's word they might not like or that might offend them. No, he held absolutely nothing back. No no doctrine, no exhortation, no warning. If it was God's truth, then Paul proclaimed it. He held nothing back. He gave them everything that was profitable, which is everything in the word of God. We're also told in verse 20 that Paul declared and taught the word of God both publicly and from house to house. And so this tells us that the church had had both corporate meetings and and home meetings. In Ephesus, Paul taught in the synagogue, also in the school of Tyrannus, and when the church gathered corporately, he no doubt taught there. But we're also told that Paul went from house to house. Now do not confuse this with some kind of strictly social gathering. These were not social calls, and this was not strictly a social gathering. Rather, this speaks about teaching the Word of God in a home Bible study or to a family or, or a small group. And the focus was not so much on socializing, but rather on smaller times, when, when the Word could be more closely applied and perhaps more detailed and personal questions could be asked. 
And so it was a time to ask questions and, and to dialogue about what had been taught and to apply it and to make it real in their lives and to make it livable. And this is the value of home fellowships where we can discuss the message, ask questions to, to reaffirm what we learned from the message that morning. We always have to guard against our, our home fellowships becoming more of a social gathering and, and neglecting the, the, the true uh, spiritual reason we're doing it. See, Paul could not be intimidated. So he didn't shrink back from declaring to the Ephesians anything that was profitable when he taught them publicly and from house to house. And loved ones, I want to tell you this, in all sincerity of heart, any pastor, I don't care who you are, any pastor who in any way compromises, waters down, or skirts around the tough passages or doctrinal issues and doesn't teach the whole counsel of God is not worth the wood his pulpit is made of, and he should do his congregation a big favor and leave the pulpit. And I mean that. And not only did Paul faithfully declare the word of God publicly and privately, he also declared the word of God to everybody. That's in verse 21, notice. Testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This word testifying, it means to make a solemn declaration about the truth of, of something. It means to testify of, to, to bear witness to. It means to exhort with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. And the word pictures a person under oath in a courtroom solemnly swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And this word indicates to us that there was a seriousness, a soberness in, in Paul's preaching, which is, which is absent in, in so much preaching today. But there was a seriousness and a soberness in Paul's preaching because he understood that the eternal destiny of men and women and boys and girls was at stake. And so he didn't take his preaching assignment lightly. These were matters of eternity. These were matters of life and death. And there are many pulpits today where, where the pastor acts and speaks more like a stand-up comedian than a pastor. Now look, I'm not saying there's not a place for humor. There certainly is. There's a place for humor in the pulpit. But it's easy to abuse humor so as to convey that we're not serious about eternal issues. That we're all just going to get together here in our flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts and the big gulps and just going to hang out and talk about Jesus. No. No. A faithful biblical pastor-teacher should convey the seriousness of the gospel. And Paul said he testified both to Jews and Greeks. He preached to all men, Jews and Gentiles. Paul wasn't partial to one group of people over another because Paul was concerned about the spiritual welfare of all men, of all men. And he saw himself as an evangelist having a mandate to reach all sinners with the truth of the gospel. I mean, to the Romans he wrote, I am under obligation both to Greeks or Gentiles and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, we see Paul's passionate desire to fulfill his evangelistic mandate. He said there, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. In fact, so intense was Paul's concern for the loss and with his ministry of the gospel, he said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. In Romans 9.3, he said, if possible, he would be willing to give up his own salvation to see his fellow Jews saved. And that's how serious Paul was about this. He had a burden for the lost. And his intense zeal for proclaiming the gospel compelled him to make his presentation of it thorough and complete. And as to the content of his testifying, look what he said uh, back in verse 21. He was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, repentance and faith are inseparable. They are two sides of the same coin or two sides of the gospel message. Can't separate them. First is repentance. The Greek word which is translated here, repentance, literally means afterthought or to think after, and thus it signifies a change of mind. And from the New Testament uses, it is very clear that repentance means not only a change of mind, but it includes a change of heart, attitude, interest, and direction. It means to turn around and to go the other direction. It refers to a full 180 degree turn which results in a changed life. And repentance is the change God works in a person's heart when they realize that they have disobeyed his laws and sinned against him. I mean, Jesus spoke to Paul in Acts 26.18 about this turning that leads to forgiveness when he gave Paul his commission with these words. Listen, he said, Jesus says to Paul, I send you, verse 18, chapter 26, to open their eyes, speaking of the Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So there it is. That's repentance. Turning from darkness to light and from Satan to God. It is a reversal of the direction of your life toward God. Now listen, you can change your mind about your actions and come to see that they're wrong but be so in love with your old ways and your own life that you won't change your actions. Or you can change your outward actions out of fear, but in your heart and mind you still remain the same. And in either case, there has been no genuine repentance. Because genuine repentance involves a radical change of direction that results in a change of behavior. Listen, The very life of God cannot invade your soul and give you life, you know, resurrection power, and your life not change. It will change. 
incrementally. We don't all change, we don't change all at once. But there will be a definite change, a definite turning around. You were headed one way and now you're headed in the other direction, the complete opposite direction. Genuine repentance involves a radical change of direction that results in a change of behavior, a change of lifestyle, because we cannot continue to pursue God and sin at the same time. First John makes it clear that our life will either be oriented toward the light or to the darkness. Now certainly the Bible makes it clear that we will sin in this life. Nobody here is talking about being sinless. We all know how much we sin. And we hate it, and we fight against it. But the Bible makes it clear that we sin in this life. But our lives will not be under the power of sin. Our lives will not be guided by sin when we're in Christ. We've been delivered from the power of sin. Sure, we'll struggle. Sometimes we'll struggle tremendously, and sometimes we fall. But we have been freed from sin's dominating power, and there will be evidence of that in our lives that we have been freed. You shall know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. I mean, true repentance, then, is a change of mind, heart, attitude, interest, and direction. It means to stop thinking and acting and living the way that you had been. And this involves the intellect, where you know you're in the wrong position. It involves the emotions, where you're, you're hurting because of it. It involves the exercising of, of the will, where you turn and go the other way. And you know, essentially, we could just say this. Repentance is the heartfelt cry, oh God, I've sinned against you, but I don't want to live that way any longer. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Save me. So repentance. Is what he preached. Secondly, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word faith means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. It means to believe in, to have confidence in, to trust in Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. And this definition emphasizes that, that saving faith is not merely an intellectual assent to some facts. There are a lot of people who believe the facts about Jesus. But it's merely an intellectual assent. There's never been any transformation of the heart. So saving faith isn't merely an intellectual assent to some facts, but rather a personal trust in Jesus Christ to save me. And like repentance, saving faith involves uh, the intellect, the emotions, and the will. The intellect, because there must be some knowledge or understanding of the facts of the gospel and a conviction that the facts of the gospel are true, especially the fact that I am a sinner in need of salvation and that Christ alone has paid the penalty for my sin and offers me salvation. You know, it also includes an awareness that I need to trust Christ for salvation and that he's the only way to God and the only means provided for my salvation. That's, that's the intellectual, but it's all also, it touches us in the emotion because it involves a deep conviction of sin and a, and a sorrow over sin and a desire to be saved through Christ. That's the emotional. But all of this doesn't add up to true saving faith. 
Because that only comes when I make a conscious decision of my will to put my trust in, my confidence in Jesus Christ alone as my only hope of salvation. It's putting my faith and trust in Christ as my Lord and Savior. And this placing of my trust in Christ is something done with with my heart. In other words, the central faculty of my entire being which makes personal commitments for me as a whole person. And so saving faith involves the total person trusting wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work upon the cross for salvation. And faith in the Lord Jesus means that I am not trusting in my own righteousness in any way, but only in Jesus as my mediator and advocate. I mean, both faith and repentance are God's gift, not a matter of human merit. As Paul will write to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, he said, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, Paul did not preach an easy believism. He didn't preach a message of cheap grace. But rather, he preached the necessity of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, which results in a changed life. If there's been no change in one's life, then we have every reason to doubt there's been any kind of genuine faith there. So with regard to the past, specifically Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, He reminded the Ephesian elders, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord. That was Paul's motive for ministry. He was serving the Lord. He saw his ministry first and foremost as a slave of Christ and he considered it a great honor and a privilege to serve the Lord in that way. Paul also reminded them of the manner of his ministry. His service was characterized by three things. He served the Lord Jesus Christ as a faithful slave with all humility, with tears, and with many trials. And yet through it all, Paul had an unshakable commitment to God and his people, and he was committed to boldly proclaiming the word of God. And he reminded the Ephesian elders of the message he preached. He declared to them the whole counsel of God. He held nothing back. He gave them everything that was profitable, everything in God's word. He faithfully declared the word of God publicly and privately to everyone, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He proclaimed the gospel to all men. And he preached that they must repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And why did he preach that? Because that's what Jesus preached. Repent and believe. And that is a message that in this day and age will offend. The gospel has been so watered down, so compromised, that it doesn't even, it's not even recognizable anymore as the gospel. Repent and believe. Repent and put your faith and trust in Christ alone. That is a message that will offend. But Paul didn't try to skirt the issue. He didn't compromise the message. He didn't worry about offending people. I mean, he spoke the truth in love, as he will write in his letter to the Ephesians. He lovingly, yet firmly and very clearly, 
communicated the fact that salvation was in Christ alone and those who did not believe in him for salvation were bound for an eternal hell. But the good news was if they would turn from their sin to God and put their faith and trust in Christ alone, they would be saved. And Paul's presentation of the gospel was always clear. It was always complete. And may God help us to do the same every time we share the good news of the gospel. Because God is glorified in the gospel. I mean, is there any more uh, amazing truth than that? Is there any more, uh, I mean, is there a more amazing message than the message of the gospel? You know, to tell the truth about some people is not to honor them. But to tell the truth about God is to honor him. And we want to honor him. We want to see God glorified. Because everything exists for God's glory. That includes us. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to love God and to glorify him forever. We're here for one reason and one reason alone, that is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to glorify him, to glorify God in all that we say and do. Because everything exists for his glory. And our salvation is is to the praise of his glorious grace. And God does everything he does for his own glory. And we should do all we do for the glory of God. Amen. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.